What do you think of when you hear the word holy or the word holiness or sanctification? These are all the same root word, holy, holiness, sanctification. What sort of things come to mind? Perhaps you imagine angels, holy angels in heaven. Or maybe you think of stories of monks out in the desert pursuing extreme devotion to God. Maybe you imagine saints who lived uh, intense lives of devotion or extravagant service. Maybe figures like Mother Teresa or St. Francis of Assisi. Or maybe the word holiness to you is just a synonym for morally upright living, obeying God's laws. While that is certainly an aspect of uh, the biblical concept of holiness, uh, this morning I want to widen the lens uh, through which we think about the concept of holiness. Uh, What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean for our lives here and now? What does it mean for our salvation? What does it mean to serve a holy God? Well, the first use of the word holy in the Bible shows up right in the beginning. Right in chapter 2 of Genesis, we see that God set apart or made holy the Sabbath. Listen to this from Genesis 2. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all his works that he had done in creation. God made the seventh day holy. He sanctified it. He set it apart from all the other days. This gives us an insight into the meaning of holiness in the scripture. My wife has a Uh, Christmas china set, plates and glasses that we use for special dinner occasions during the Christmas season. It would be very odd for me to take that set uh, in the middle of July out on a picnic and set out those plates and glasses. Uh, She might uh, be a little bit frustrated with me, understandably. Uh, Those are set for, they're, they're set apart, they're reserved for a special time and a special place. Uh, similarly, a, a, an ornate wedding gown uh, that a bride wears in her wedding is very fitting for that occasion, but it would be odd for some of you to start showing up at worship on Sunday morning in your wedding gown. It's not fitting for that occasion. To be holy in Scripture is to be set apart, to be devoted, to be consecrated for a particular purpose. But I said in the beginning, we know that God is holy, right? Scripture teaches that God is holy. What does that mean? God is set apart. He's transcendent. He's unlike anything else in all of creation. Isaiah 44 puts it this way, to whom then will you compare me? What that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Or in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah prays, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our rock. In both Isaiah and in John, we see a glimpse, a picture, a vision of the heavenly throne room. And both Isaiah and John tell us that the angels are crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy. 
God is pure, he's righteous, he's perfect, he's all-glorious and transcendent. He's set apart, he's holy. But to understand the way that holiness works in the Bible, we need to understand this. God made man in his image, in his likeness for communion with him. That means that Adam and Eve were also made holy. They were made holy like God. They were set apart for service in his creation. And they were made for communion with a holy God. God put them in the garden, we know, to cultivate it and to keep it. Those are the two verbs that are used in Genesis 2 to talk about Adam's responsibility in the garden. And of course, that language is picked up later in the Old Testament to describe the priest's duty in the sanctuary. The priest is to cultivate or uh, to to, uh, serve and to keep or guard the sanctuary. That tells us there's something going on in in, uh, Genesis 2 with that garden. It's not just uh, keeping a garden as we would or guarding, guarding it from outsiders. Adam is functioning as a kind of priest. He has priestly duties in the sanctuary. And we know that, uh, again, Adam and Eve were to commune with God. We know God himself comes into the garden with them, right? Uh, In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, we're told that they heard uh, the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God and man dwelt together in this garden. Holy God and holy people communing together. That was the beginning of all things for uh, creation. And of course, through Adam's disobedience, sin and death and impurity entered the world. And Adam and Eve were exiled out of the sanctuary. They had to leave. And God kept them out by means of cherubim and a flaming sword that turns every which way so that they cannot enter this space. Mankind was separated from God's presence because of sin. And this is our first instance in Scripture of holy space that is off-limits for man. There's a space in creation that's off-limits for man because of his sin. Uh, Man cannot approach God in the same way that he could prior to the fall. So the rest of Scripture recounts God's gracious acts to bring mankind back to this estate. A holy God dwelling with his holy people. That's the story of the Bible. Uh, Begins with a holy God and his holy people and it's about a rescue plan after they had fallen from that estate to get back to uh, that kind of estate. Holy God with a holy people. We know this because that's how the Bible ends, right? Revelation uh, 22, 21 and 22 end with a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. A holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And what are we told there? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So this is the broader framework through which we should view the concept of holiness. The goal of redemptive history, the goal of God's saving works in history is a holy God communing and being with his holy people. God calls Abram out, of course, right? He sets Abram apart from the other nations and 
uh, sets his name upon him. He makes promises to him. He makes him a holy family for his good purposes. So he sets apart Abram in this rescue plan. Uh, sets him apart from the other nations. There to be a Abram's family is to be a treasured possession. We're told to be a treasured people who would uh, bring about God's plan to restore all of humanity. In the Exodus, God delivers this family from slavery to Pharaoh and covers them with the blood of the Passover. So he buys them, is what we're told. They're bought out of slavery uh, to Pharaoh and brings them up out of Egypt to Sinai to give them his law, that that they might walk in his wisdom and in righteousness, that they might imitate God, uh, that they might be set apart from the nations in the way that they live. They're to be a holy people. He brought them out of the dark and sinful ways of the nations and into the light of his law, into the light of his covenant. Now, immediately after this uh, redemption from slavery, God gives instructions for the tabernacle system, right? There's the tabernacle system that's given at Mount Sinai. And instead of looking at these laws like we might be tempted to as a way to keep people out, we sometimes think of of the laws in Leviticus as a way to keep people away from God, uh, we need to see those laws in the broader movement of what we're talking about here a holy God desiring to be with his holy people. That's what God is doing in setting up the tabernacle system. He's restoring fellowship to man. Man's been separated. He's been exiled from the garden. And now he's providing a way for man to get back to the sanctuary. He's providing in a limited way, a way for man to fellowship with him. So God is setting up his house so that Israel could move closer to him. Right? He dwells in the midst of Israel. He's the Holy One in the midst of Israel, Isaiah says over and over again. He sets that house up right in the middle of all the people so that they can draw near. They're able to draw near by paying attention to these rules and laws. He's setting up a safe way for them to approach. And through their appointed representatives and means, God's people are able to commune with him again in worship. So at Sinai, God's opening up a new way for his people to draw near to them after the fall. He's setting up a kind of limited access to the garden sanctuary once again, the Holy of Holies. Uh, We know that the high priest goes in once a year, so it's very limited and not everybody can go into the holy place and uh, there's all kinds of, of rules. But the movement, again, is God drawing people near, not keeping people out. He's setting up additional access. And he's teaching them about the kind of people that they need to be, right? In order to to be his holy people, he gives them rules. He gives them laws. Again, the aim of the holiness laws is fellowship, communion, and union with the living God. They're an invitation to life with God in God's house. Now, of course, the law was not able to fully and finally remove humanity's sin, and humanity's guilt. Uh, The law was not able to restore the relationship that was broken at the fall. Rather, it pointed forward to the redemption that God would ultimately bring about through Christ. All of these things were types and shadows leading to Christ. As we read about in 1 Peter 1, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. He was revealed 
and the last time for your sake, Peter says. Okay, this was the plan all along. Uh, God didn't uh, execute plan B once Israel failed. This had always been the plan from all eternity. And through the precious blood of Christ, the pure and spotless lamb, God would rescue his people. Uh, He would make them pure. He would make them a holy people to dwell with him forever. Hebrews 10 tells us that Christ had opened up a new and living way. Okay, so just as the tabernacle was a new way for people to draw near to God, so Christ's death and resurrection opens up a new and living way. Uh, Through his death and resurrection, we now are covered with his blood and Hebrews says we have confidence, just as we, we just sang in the hymn, we have confidence to draw near to the holy place. We don't have to be afraid. We can draw near to the throne of grace because of Christ's blood. We can be bold as we enter into the sanctuary this morning. And so this is the broader movement behind uh, Peter's letter here. These are the themes that Peter has going on in the background uh, in verses 13 to 21. And so for the remainder of our time, I want to consider three aspects of our call to holiness in these verses. The first is a call to hope in the future holiness, a call to holy living here and now, and thirdly, a call to holy fear. So we'll take these in turn. Let's look at the call to hope. In verse 13, he says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, Peter, in a good apostolic fashion, is transitioning from the indicative to the imperative. Okay, indicative is what's true about us, our identity, who we are. That's what he covered in verses 1 through 12, what God has done for you in Christ. And now he's transitioning Therefore, to the imperative, here are things that you need to do now that this is who you are. Uh, This is what Paul does over and over in his letters. Uh, Think about Ephesians. You could divide uh, the book of Ephesians up as indicative and imperative. You've got chapters 1 through 3 are about who we are in Christ now that we're united with Christ, what he's done. And chapters 4 through 6 are all about what we ought to do, how we ought to live as the church. You could do the same thing with Romans. So Romans 1 through 11 is all about God's faithfulness to his covenant, how he has kept his promises and the redemption in Christ that he's brought about. And then as we read in chapter 12, that's the therefore. 12 uh, through 16 are the remainder of the instructions, uh, what we are to do. So you have indicative, what's true about you in Christ, and now imperative, the things that you are to do. This isn't just a a New Testament idea, right? In, In the old covenant, we see this, Uh, In Exodus 20, the giving of the law, uh, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you. I rescued you from slavery. You're my people. Now here are the Ten Commandments, right? Now here are the rules that I want you to follow. Uh, So the grace always precedes the demand. God always saves and then calls us to holy living. It's never the other way around. So Peter says, therefore, therefore, so in light of verses 1 through 12, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, just as a a recap, he's praising God for his great mercy that he's caused us to be born again to this 
living hope, born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Okay, and now that we're alive in Christ because what Christ has brought about through his resurrection, uh, we have various sufferings, uh, but we can pursue, we can walk through those sufferings with joy. We're now alive to this new world uh, in Christ. We're now uh, being guarded for a future salvation. Our faith is being guarded. We have an imperishable inheritance that's kept in heaven for us. But he says the testing of our faith uh, produces uh, genuineness in our faith and that it will lead to a future kind of glory. So this is the, this is the uh, background for his therefore. In light of God's rich mercy, what he has done for you in Christ, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. In light of all of that, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed, that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're commanded to hope. Isn't that interesting? We're commanded to hope. Set your hope fully and completely on the grace that is to be brought to you. Hope is faith that's oriented towards the future. Uh, Trusting in God to act on our behalf in the future. So living your life with this reality fixed in your mind. Peter gives us two participles here to show us how to cultivate the hope. Okay, Set your hope fully is the command. How do we do that, Peter? Well, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Sober-minded, wake up. Don't lose sight of this reality. Do not... Forget where your hope is. Do not forget the grace that is to be revealed to you. Stay focused on what God's word says is true about you here and now and what's true about you to come. Uh, Don't remain in a kind of drunken stupor. Be sober-minded. And preparing your minds for action. Literally, gird up the loins of your minds is what it says. Uh, This idea of girding up your loins is, you know, guys who are wearing robes have to tie it up so that they can go do work, right? They can go do, uh, go to battle or uh, move around quickly. You can't run around in a, in a robe. You got to tie it up. You got to gird it up. So he says, gird up the loins of your minds. Uh, this concept shows up over and over again in the Old Testament, but one key example is uh, in Exodus at the Passover. Israel's commanded to eat the Passover with your loins girded up. Okay, be ready. We're getting ready to get out of here. God's getting ready to redeem us from slavery. Be ready to go. So they're eating it in haste and they have their loins girded up. Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your minds. Be ready to go. Be focused on the mission. So the mind, the head, informs the heart. The mind informs the heart. Uh, You have to renew your mind so that your hope can be set on the grace that is to be brought to you. This is why we need to study the scriptures, right? We need to renew our minds in the reading of of scripture. We need to renew our minds in uh, the preaching of the word and reading scripture together and singing psalms together. The mind plays an active role in shaping the heart and in shaping our hope. We're to meditate on God's law day and night, setting our mind on the hope to come. So what is this grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 3. 
says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Okay, we're preparing our minds for action. We're setting our hope on this future reality that the grace that's going to be brought to us is that we will be made like Jesus. We will be glorified. We will be made perfectly holy like Jesus. And there's a mystery here. There's a mystery here. Uh, John and Peter are both saying when we do that, when we set our mind on the future, we're not just waiting around. Okay, We're not just hoping, uh, just trying to get through right now until the future comes. There's a mystery here that when you set your mind, when you set your hope on the grace that is to come, it transforms us now. It purifies us now is what John says. Okay, It renews us. It sets us up for holy living in the present. And that's the second point here I want us to see is a call to holy living. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter's quoting Leviticus here. Leviticus in a number of places uses that refrain, you shall be holy for I am holy. But notice that he begins here with identity again, that indicative and imperative, right? Um, Who you are, that's who he's telling them. Who you are before telling them what you should do, how you should live. He tells them whose they are. Who do you belong to? You are called by a holy God. You have been called by a holy God. God has purchased us with the blood of Christ. God saves unholy and sinful people and makes them holy. He saves the unrighteous, the ungodly, and he washes us clean. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He justifies the ungodly, declares us holy. Being holy is impossible for us without the precious blood of Christ. And we are called by a holy God. So that's whose you are. But then he calls them children of obedience. Okay, you're now children of obedience. We're children in that he just told us in a few verses prior that we've been born again, right? We've been born again to a living hope. We've been born into this new creation that Jesus brought about through his resurrection. And now we are children in this sense. We're born again, children of obedience. This resurrection life now results in a transformed life, a life of obedience, Part of what it means to be delivered from sin and from death is that we're given a new heart, right? We're we're resurrected now in a very real sense. We're waiting for that future grace where we will have new bodies, we'll be like Jesus, but we're resurrected now. We are children of obedience now, given transformed hearts that long to obey God, that love God. Uh, Micah 7 puts it this way, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression, for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. 
Yes, he casts away the penalty of our sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But he also tramples down sin in our lives. He tramples down the power of sin in our lives here and now so that we might be slaves to righteousness until we reach the day where the presence of sin is no more. Peter gives us a glimpse of what this new heart looks like, uh, what a new heart of obedience looks like. He says, again, a few verses prior, though you have not seen Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. You have joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory in the midst of trials. You love him and you desire to do what he says. As children of obedience, we have new hearts that love him and want to obey him. We've been made into a good tree that now bears good fruit. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay? You're children of obedience. You're called by a holy God. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. A call to holy living means that we are set apart from former ways. Similarly, in verse 18, he says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Okay? Ways of ignorance, ways of futility. This is the life you've been brought out of. God has delivered you from a life of enslavement to sinful passions. Sin permeates everything, right? Sin permeates our minds, it permeates our hearts, it permeates everything. And this language of former ignorance and futility is an indication of that, that our minds are corrupted. We desire wrong things in our hearts and we think wrong things about God and the world as a result of sin. This is very similar to language Paul uses in Ephesians. He says this, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, Paul says, put off the old way, put off the old man, take that off and put on the new man, put on Christ. Likewise, Peter tells us that former manner of life is no longer who you are. Do not allow yourself to be poured into that mold. Do not be conformed to that image, but rather be transformed by renewing your minds. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Renew your mind with truth. God's word is truth. We just read that in, in uh, John. Be set apart from your former ways. So he says, also be holy in all your conduct. Okay, a, a call to holy living means we're set apart from former ways and to holy ways or heavenly ways. These future ways, the ways of the new heavens and the new earth, the way of the new creation. You've been made holy through the blood of Christ. So Peter says, now be who you are. 
Be who you are. You've been made a citizen of the coming city. Now walk according to that pattern. God has called us holy in Christ, and now we need to walk according to that pattern. Okay? He calls us holy, but then he commands us uh, to live holy lives. We have Christ's name on us, and now he wants to form us into Christ's image. We have a positional holiness. We've been declared sanctified, righteous, holy. Paul says this, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's all past tense. Okay, this is true of you. But then the rest of the New Testament tells us that we need to be holy. We need to be transformed. We need to be conformed to Christ's image. Uh, there's a process to our sanctification, to becoming holy. Peter says, we make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue. Okay, we make every effort. Um, the writer of Hebrews puts it like this, we strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, we strive for that holiness. We don't sit around or sit back or wait for it. We pursue it. We make every effort. Now, this doesn't mean that we do 50% and God does 50%. You know, I'll do my part, God, you do your part. Uh, no, that's, that's not what the scriptures teach either. Paul puts it this way, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Okay, you work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the spirit is at work in our efforts to pursue holiness. The Spirit works through our striving. Peter says to be holy in all your conduct. In all your conduct. That is to say, in all of your living, in all manner of life, in everything you do, be holy. At home, at work, with your family, with your friends, in public, in private, in your politics, in culture, in your hobbies, be holy. We are set apart, pursuing all of life according to God's revelation, to God's revealed word. As we read in our Old Testament lesson in Leviticus 18, Israel was called to be holy, and they were commanded to not walk in the ways of the Egyptians. They don't walk in the ways of the Egyptians whom you've just been brought out from, and don't walk in the ways of the Canaanites, whom I'm about to spit out of the land, uh, but walk according to the new way. Walk according to this way that I've revealed to you. Those worlds are passing away. Egypt's uh, going the way of uh, old history. Uh, Canaan's being spit out. Walk it according to the new way that I've given you. Uh, Christians are to be set apart from the ways of the world, from unbelieving cultures. Now, of course, there are times in church history where uh, the surrounding culture is brought more and more into conformity with God's word. And in these times, there's not as stark a contrast between um, society and the church. But we are increasingly moving into a situation much like Peter's original audience, aren't we? Where the ways of the church look extremely odd uh, utterly strange to the world. Christians are to be true to the pattern that's been shown in Christ. 
And this will look odd and even foolish to those who live according to the pattern of the world under sin. Uh, Stuart talked about last week, you know, submitting to your boss, something that Peter gets to later in the letter, even if he's uh, an unjust boss. Um, Being joyful in trials. These seem very strange to the world. Wives who are happy in their callings as, as wives and homemakers. That seems very odd to the world. Men showing honor to their wives. Uh, children loving their siblings and obeying their parents. Uh, singles who pursue lives of chastity. All these things seem foolish and irrational to the world. Be holy in all your conduct. We might be tempted to think of holiness as extravagant acts of uh, service, um, maybe becoming a foreign missionary or uh, starting a major charity organization uh, or some other kind of noticeable initiative. And while these are valid pursuits and callings uh, for Christians, the Bible doesn't spend as much time talking about those things when it talks about holiness. It talks more about ordinary things, everyday examples of holiness. Listen to some of these examples that Peter gives in his letter. He says, a holy people should be marked by these things, submission to civil authorities, suffering joyfully in unjust circumstances, wives submitting to your husbands, adorning yourselves with a gentle and quiet spirit, husbands living with wives in understanding and showing honor to them, having unity and brotherly love in the church, submitting to the elders of your church, clothing yourselves in humility, casting your anxieties on God, resisting the devil. Or if we look outside of 1 Peter, a couple of examples of holiness are things like speaking the truth, watching our tongues, using speech that builds up, being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, doing honest work, Children obeying parents, members striving to build up the church, serving one another, showing hospitality. In short, holiness just looks like the fruit of the Spirit being worked out in our everyday lives. This is the vocation that God has called His holy people to. Uh, It's being conformed to the pattern of Christ's image, living as He lived, walking as He walked. Be holy as I am holy. Now, Peter in Leviticus that he quotes uses the second person uh, plural in this command. So you all, all of you, be holy as I am holy. God isn't just making us individually holy. He's doing that, but he's sanctifying a people for himself. Uh, So this isn't just a private concern where we need to pursue our own personal holiness and get to heaven by ourselves. This is uh, a corporate call to God's collective people. God is sanctifying a people for himself to dwell with in eternity. We need each other. As we read in Romans 12, we need the differing gifts of the body of Christ to pursue this collective calling. You cannot do it on your own. We can't just keep starting our own churches every time a brother or sister isn't pursuing holiness in the way that we think they ought to be pursuing it. Uh, We have to bear with one another, we have to be sober-minded, not think too highly of ourselves, and we have to help one another along. We have to point things out. Um, We have to help one another in this pursuit of purity and peace in the church. 
And we need to stir one another up to love and good works and strive to excel in the building up of the church. So you all be holy as I am holy. Lastly and briefly, we're commanded to conduct ourselves in holy fear. Conduct yourself in holy fear. Listen to this, 17 to 19. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's work, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Okay, so Peter says, if you call on him as father, if you claim God as father, conduct yourselves in fear. Conduct yourselves in holy, reverent fear with these two things in mind. Knowing that God judges according to each one's work and knowing that you've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Okay, conduct yourselves in fear knowing that God judges all and you've been ransomed with Christ's precious blood. Both the Old and New Testaments teach that God will judge all of humanity according to each one's work. And this is true for both believers and unbelievers. Okay, he says, if you call on him as father, fear that God is a judge. Okay, so this is true for believers. All will stand before God's throne in judgment. Those who are in Christ, of course, have their sins forgiven. They're washed clean. But as Peter has already shown us, those who are called, those who are holy, uh, have transformed lives. They're children of obedience. We are transformed people. We're good trees who produce good fruit. So the last judgment according to our work doesn't, doesn't mean that we earn our salvation, but our works do demonstrate the evidence of true and living faith. Okay? Our works on the last day show who we belong to. They show that we are children of obedience. They are the work of the Spirit. And on the last day, the Father reads the Spirit's handwriting in our lives. Okay? He sees true evidence of the Spirit's work as he's worked out our salvation. The Westminster Larger Catechism 32 puts it this way. It says, The Holy Spirit enables believers unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God and as the way which he hath appointed them to salvation. Okay, holy obedience for the people of God is the way of salvation. God will be our judge. We dare not pretend to claim his name. The second reason he gave us to fear is that we are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. God has given us an immeasurable gift that is free to us, but cost him dearly. Christ's precious blood, his own beloved son giving his life for our sake. We dare not trample or despise the blood of Christ by forsaking him. We must conduct ourselves in holy, reverent fear. Now this reverent fear is not a crippling fear. As one writer put it, we can have a healthy fear when we're driving our car down the road, knowing that um, all sorts of danger could lie ahead if we're careless uh, driving the car. We can have a healthy fear uh, driving the, the car carefully, and yet we might listen to music or talk to people while we're driving. It doesn't keep us from getting around, but we have a healthy respect for the dangers involved. 
holy people conduct themselves with a healthy fear of forsaking our Lord and our calling. We're called to be a heavenly people, living according to the heavenly pattern. The pattern revealed in Jesus here and now. The book of Revelation ends with the vision of the holy city, as I mentioned before, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And we're given the measurements of the city. Uh, And the measurements amount to a giant cube, which might seem odd to us, but if we read Leviticus, we see the Holy of Holies was a type of cube. Uh, And what John, what's been revealed to John in this vision is that uh, this whole city has become the Holy of Holies. The new heavens and new earth is now filled with the glory and holiness of God. There's no more temple because God's presence, uh, God is now the temple and, and his presence is not limited as it once was. Listen to this in chapter 21 of Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So God's holiness permeates the whole place. He dwells with his holy people. No unclean thing is brought in. The wicked are not part of this place. No tears, no pain, no mourning, no death. These things can only be possible uh, in a place without sin. The new heavens and the new earth are fully set apart from all sin and impurity. A place of unspeakable joy and life. People walking in pure fellowship with a holy God living the way it ought to be. This is the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus is fully revealed. This is the glory beyond compare that God has called us to and is training us to walk in here and now. You are a heavenly people being trained to walk in heavenly ways. And every Lord's Day, we come to the Lord's table to receive holy things for holy people, the gifts of God for the people of God. We are the heavenly people gathered in God's heavenly throne room receiving his heavenly gifts every week. And as we come to this table in a moment, let us set our hope on the future glory uh, that is to be revealed, where we will dwell with our holy God as his holy people. And let us also give thanks that we have the gifts of communing with our God here and now, this day, where he strengthens us by his Holy Spirit to live according to the heavenly pattern. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.